about 10 years ago, I watched Five Star Final. That's her first movie with Edward G. Robinson. And this is 1931, and I thought, oh my God, she looks so modern. What she's doing seems so different than what everybody else in the cast is doing. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Around the world for comedy. I talk with the director of Britain's top silent and sound comedy festival, the Slapstick Festival in Bristol. Then the biographer of Norway's one great silent comic and his one film. And Aline McMahon is best remembered for comic turns in movies like Gold Diggers of 1933. But a new biography puts her at the beginning of an important movement in dramatic acting, The Method. Like, man, you want to subscribe at, you know, like a podcast app. And you could leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, too. It's... It's the Slapstick Festival, but it's not just a silent comedy festival. In fact, it spans a wide range of comedy, introducing people to Chaplin and Keaton, while also putting them in the context of other comics throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. It's held in Bristol, England, and in part online. This year, it's 19th, it runs February 14th through 19th, and the special presenters will include some folks you know from this podcast. To find out more, I spoke with festival director Chris Daniels from Bristol. So Bristol is, I read that it is the fifth largest town in Britain and to the southwest of London. Yes, yes it is. It's, um, yeah, so it's, it's got about half a million people, inhabitants. Um, and it's yeah, it's a big city really for us. And it, it, I guess it's probably globally gotten more of a sort of global reputation because of the. You might be familiar with the um, the Colston statue being torn down, oh, thrown I, into the docks. I think I saw that video of that. Yes. Yeah. So politically, it's kind of we're notorious <laughs> in some ways, I suppose. But um, you're not for the slapstick festival, though, really. But no, it's um, and, and there've been a few interesting bands like Massive Attack and Porter's Head have come out of Bristol, and um, it's a nice cultural hub, really. It's very diverse, you know. It's um, it's a it's an interesting city, really. So, do you have much film culture there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that that originally turned me on to starting what was then called Bristol Silence, the silent film club, was um, was moving here and going to some of the art cinemas here. I hadn't seen, there were two art cinemas in Bristol. I was very impressed. And they were screening all kinds of movies, including some old silent movies. And um, that was where I became 
I suppose, educated into silent film, film history, and fell in love with some of those early wonderful films back from the silent days. And um, that was all, that all came to me through moving to Bristol. I don't think I would have come across it in the same way otherwise. In Bristol, it was a real eye-opener to me. I would, I would go and discover films from, I mean, I mean, back, back, of course, I'm talking, so when would that be? Two, 20, 20 plus years ago. So it's relatively recent, 25, 30 years ago, recent to me anyway. Yeah. And um, <laughs> in terms of film culture, it's very rich here. And of course, David Robinson, who is a, is a film historian and he lives in Bath. So he doesn't live far from us. And he's been a visitor here and he's been a patron of our festival and this kind of thing. So there's a real sense of happening. And of course, other we've got the Wild Screen Festival here, Encounters Film Festival. There's the Rediscovered Cinema um, Festival, which is has a relationship with the Bologna uh, Ritrovato Festival, Restoration Festival. So we have a lot of sort of film heritage and culture here that we were able to kind of build on really that sort of fascination and interest in film culture. Um, yeah. I thought it was interesting that the festival really, you know, I mean, in, in the U S I guess I'd say, you know, there are silent comedy festivals and there are comedy festivals that are about relatively new comedy in some sense mm. and not necessarily both at the same time. So I thought it was kind of impressive that your lineup includes a lot of silent comedy, but there's also, you know, we think of relatively modern, although, you know, Monty Python is not exactly <laughs> new at this point. And, you know, no, other no. things like that. Yeah, it's interesting that because I guess when we, because this is our 19th year now as a festival, and the very first year, I would say nearly every every single event, it would have been smaller then, so we probably had 12 events, but all of them was silent comedy. And we were... I suppose what's different about slapstick. So I went. So I I went to Washington to Slapsticon. Okay. The festival that was running right. then, quite a long time ago now, and there it was brilliant because they were doing a real deep dive into the work of the great silent comics, but also the less well known, you know, Snub Pollard, and uh, you know, looking at, at you know Charlie Chase or other performers that are less well-known to members of the public. And it was fascinating to see the obscurity of some of those films and to be able to access it. But in the UK, maybe in the US as well, because, because the silent era, apart from historically, it's, it's past, it's, it's nearly 100 years away from us now, a lot of younger generations just don't know who even the big names are. Right. So it, there are some people who are teenagers. I mean, certainly my son is now, he's coming up for 18 and his pals at school do not know who Buster Keaton is. And they don't, they, they would recognize Lauren Hardy and they'd probably maybe recognize Charlie Chaplin, but they wouldn't really have a clue about Harold Lloyd or any of these other names. So although it looks like we're running for the most part, popular silent comedies, the huge, the big names and the big films for the most part, you know, in the UK, it's it, it's still a new discovery for people, and it's a discovery for younger audiences to to see any of these films. So, for the initiated, it's 
for the most part, some of our films are very much uh, a retread of classics that we're very familiar with. But what, what I think is our unique selling point as a festival is we're building new audiences. We're looking to not let the, it, not let the, the realm of silent comedy and silent film fall into relative, not obscurity, but kind of it become a sort of um, an antiquity. Look, there's just a club of people that, that love it, that get older and older and eventually right. it disappears. We're looking to kind of, you know, we have 6,000 people come every year. And, and for the most part, a lot of those people are seeing silent films for the first time. And we're really proud of that, really, that we're able to say, come and have some, come and have fun. And, and, and in a way, if you look at the programme, some of those elements are in there quite consciously, in a way, to attract people to come. And then when they're there, so, so they might come to see, say, a Buster Keaton double bill, and then we'll say, well, you know, tomorrow we've got Charlie Bowers. Right. And we've got this program of really obscure... And they're like, who's Charlie Bowers? And we're like, well, you know, if you like Buster Keaton, come and see this guy. And it's like, you know, using using a really big carrot to attract people yeah. <laughs> and say, have a look at this other wonderful stuff too. And and some of those people stay and stick and come again. And we've got a lovely loyal following too. And a passionate, you'll be blessed with passionate guests who who often are very well known who are willing to come for free really to support us because we're a not-for-profit organization and they'll come and talk about things and of course their endorsement of it then attracts another audience of their fans that will come to see them talking about their passion and then they'll experience both the films and see the performer as well so that's our kind of that's the cunning plan of the <laughs> festival is to is to kind of um, is to kind of pull something like that together that attracts a bigger audience on the hope that people discover this and some people will love it and some people it won't be their thing I guess but yeah yeah so you have uh, Michael Palin is a special guest this year uh, surely I don't need to say that he's from Monty Python for this audience uh, <laughs> but uh, you know it's interesting I mean you've got some of his films that he really likes that are being shown. I mean, things like Spinal Tap, uh, but also, I mean, a lot of, a lot of silent comedy in the program. I don't know. Was any of that his Mm. choice or? No, I have had a chat with him about silent comedy and he does say that, that he, he enjoyed Buster Keaton the most and he wasn't a Chaplin fan particularly, Mm. but he loved, he loved Keaton and enjoyed Keaton, but he, I think he's, he was influenced by him in the early days, but he, he doesn't, when we asked him what film, so we asked him a number of things. So as, as a guest curator, as we would sort of term it, we asked him to choose his favorite Monty Python film. And he was, he was a bit torn, but he said, ultimately he would come to the Life of Brian event because he thought that was their finest work, really. So he chose that. And then we're putting on uh, we're putting on Holy Grail as well, and he's done a pre-recorded in, uh, pre-recorded intro for that with John Cleese too. Um, and in addition to that, we asked him what was his what was the favourite film that he himself had appeared in, and he'd chosen a Private Function from 1984, uh, which is a bit of an obscure 
British film, the handmade films, you know, the George sure. Harrison's sort of company. Yeah. And um, it was quite a surprise when I said <laughs> your most influential comedy film and he chose Spinal Tap. It's fascinating. That's his top film that he, he did consider. He said he considered um, a Peter Sellers film that was hugely influential, but he said it didn't age well. So, <laughs> which so one? He, he went, which one was it? He didn't say. Yeah, oh. he didn't say what the title. Was. I know it's a bit of a mystery, I'm afraid. But um, and then yeah, and that's so Spinal Tap. And then I think is there another? I don't know if there was another thing, but he he definitely was involved in that those kinds of choices, which is very nice that he he kind of helped put that. Oh, that's right. There's a there's a short there's a there's a film that runs for about an hour or so. It's a, a sort of drama rather than a comedy east of Ipswich and it's about Mike Palin's teenage and into his 20s years where he meets his wife Helen so it's a lovely film that I think was on British TV it's a BBC film I don't know if it might be accessible to people online too but um yeah it's a lovely film that that again he's chosen so for us what we wanted to do was have a bit of a a bit of a deeper dive into strands of the program. So musical comedy really is one strand. Then there's the Python paling strand. And then, as you've said too, a very strong silent comedy strand too, that runs from, you know, right from those classics like the double bill Sherlock Jr. And the navigator that's the double bill from um, 1920. Is that, a, that's not the centenary, is it? 1924. So we're actually yeah. one year off the centenary year. So we are celebrating the 99th year. Of <laughs> yes, the, <laughs> the, the archetypal 99th year. year. Very, very important. Yeah, year. exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, well, you do get the hundredth anniversary of Safety Last. So yes, yeah, on the date. I mean, that was um, Suzanne Lloyd got in touch and said, you know, Chris, you should you should really put this on on the first if you can, and. Um, what a wonderful thing to do, you know, exactly a century to the day we're putting on safety last. And, and I mean, I mean, we're, we're, we're at the moment speaking to a stunt performer called Vic Armstrong, who's interested in coming to talk about it. He was the stunt performer for Harrison Ford on um, Indiana Jones films. Hmm. So he would, and he's, he's a huge admirer of Harold Lloyd. So it'd be a great match if he is able to, to come yeah. to that, so we're speaking to, to him. And then we've got, you know, a whole series of films that are less well-known, which were curated by Kevin Brownlow. So um, Kevin suggested um, I Kiss Your Hand, Madame, which is the only the only Marlene Dietrich uh, silent comedy. And From that period before her debut. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> because because yes. she always claimed that uh, The Blue Angel was her first film, but... You know, there's several, yes. like around 28, 29 that she's in. Yes, yes, but you can see why she might she might claim that. But yeah, yeah. so so there's there's that and um, the cigarette girl from Muscle Prom, right? Too, which is which we're screening, and then a series from the Nasty Women Kino series yes. that's released now. And then because of the sensibilities around the terminology and, and such, so obviously we understand that the use of the, the satirical use of nasty in inverted commas women, but um, it was rebranded by members of the team here as on-screen wonder women, as pioneers. 
but um, but essentially it is from that program and the work that those archivists have, have pulled together for these films. It is extraordinary, isn't it, that that there's still there's there are still people who are exploring and restoring these films and that we're able to view them in this way. I mean, it's quite extraordinary period for us to be able to access films in this way. So it's it's fabulous, isn't it? We did have the Lubitsch film, um, I Don't Want to Be a Man, was originally part of the programme because that also has those really strong representations. But I think right. we're, we're planning to do a, a sort of gender rebels strand later later this year as a separate program but it's fascinating and it, it's wonderful that that we're able to champion women in silent comedy far more now because the material is accessible to us and when we first started this 20 years ago it was that wasn't really available to us we'd have mabel normand and maybe marion davis mary pickford but it, it we weren't able to to explore in the way that we now are and have this sort of access, which is brilliant for us, really. Um, and then this really confusing way of trying to integrate it with with brand new silent comedy. I don't know if you spotted that, but you may not even know who Harry Hill is. Do you know who Harry Hill no, is? No, that was a new name <laughs> to me. No, I know. Well, Harry Hill is he's probably he's easily as well known as Michael Palin in the UK, okay. I would say. So he has a, a number of TV series. Um, he made a film, the Harry Hill movie too. And he is <laughs> extremely visual and um, over the top. He is the kind of, is the kind of personality who you could imagine would have worked well in the silent era. So if he were born perhaps in that period, you could see that kind of working. Although his films, we just we just put a trailer out with some moments of it. His films are not, I guess, the kind of sophisticated films we might see from performers from the era, but they're more like a 21st century interpretation of what we think a silent comedy is, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he's very entertaining, very funny. He, he was actually a, um, he was a doctor, so he's a medic. <laughs> and then sort of pivoted to towards comedy, really, and doing these things. But he's very surreal and wacky and a bit like, I mean, very goonish, if you know the goons. Sure. It's very much that kind of comedy and humour. So, um, And he's made some, some silent comedies, which we're looking at with him over the festival as well. So it's, um, it's, quite, a, it's quite a range, really. But hopefully, again, for people who wouldn't consider looking at an old archive film, but they've seen Harry Hill all over the TV in the UK, they might come and see him, see his film, and then look at some of the earlier films. So it's, it's all that kind of um, you know, developing different ways of, of reaching out to different people to engage them in, in, in a different way, to bring them to film heritage, really. Yeah. Now, I saw that you have uh, a couple of programs with two people well-known to this podcast, Steve Massa and Ben Modell. Yes. Yeah, they're fabulous. We've established this sort of live from New York strand. <laughs> <laughs> it's very glamorous for us, you know, this live link-up thing. So we'll be in the cinema in Bristol. They'll be over in New York in the morning. We'll be over here in the afternoon, evening. <laughs> and, right. um, yeah, they'll be running their new restorations. and. It's become, I think this is our third collaboration with them. 
Nice. So, I mean, it's fabulous. And, you know, Ben's been a friend. I met him in um, Slapsticon years ago when I first came over all those years back. And we sort of stayed in touch. And it's fabulous to have a champion like Ben and Steve, of course, and, and he's, he's in the kind of the historian aspect of it too, as I'm sure Ben's incredibly knowledgeable as well. But, you know, to be able to work on a project where you, you're impassioned to restore the film and then you're composing the score and then you're packaging a DVD and then you're presenting it online and performing it live. It's, it's the whole package, isn't it? Yeah. Ben yeah. And Steve. So it's fabulous. It's like a ready-made comedy show. So it's, they've become guests. And one of these days, you know, perhaps we'll be able to fly them over in, right. in first class and, and you know, <laughs> have them come to the whole festival. But for the moment we're doing the streaming stuff and it's a way of also offering something to people who can't attend to, um, during the 2020, no, 2021, we ran everything online and that was how it began really. And then we've just retained some elements of it really, but it's, it's difficult for us to do hybrid festival because of the, the costs and, it, and we're, we're quite under-resourced. So we have to kind of, we have to choose where we can place things really. So when we're doing a live physical thing, it, it practically has to be that for the most part for us. So, yeah. So which parts are going to be online? Well, we'll just this this year. It will just be the live from New York, so it'll just oh, okay. be the um, Ben Steve thing. And of course, the the problem for us time wise too is if it's live streamed, which it would be, it would be quite early. It would be in the morning for people in the US, so it would be a sort of European <laughs> access time yeah. slot. Really, they're doing Paths to Paradise, and you're. Is it, you'd be surprised. I was about to call it. You're telling me um, with Raymond yeah. Griffith, which is also coming mm. out from them as a DVD Blu-ray. Yeah, exactly. So it's um, and we've 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 screened we screened some of um, his titles before on film, and of course, again, one of those performers who we've lost so many of his films. So it's great to see any of his films sort of restored and championed and even when there's a real missing right in in some cases and we screened um hands up before so people would be familiar with the festival but it's um it's great again to have a double bill and to have a bit of a kind of exploration of um of him at the at the festival too and it's great to see to every single event we do ask people for feedback so we can always see those who are most engaging for audiences still today. So that's very interesting to us. Um, so do yeah. you, do you have like kind of one unified audience or does it to a certain extent divide into the, the old movie crowd and the TV comedy crowd or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a funny, it's a funny divide really. So we, we have silent comedy passes for people that want to come to all of the, weekday silent comedy and we probably i would say we, we kind of limit those but i think we sell every year we sell out about 40 passes nice. for that so that's a really solid core audience of people that love and want to see the silent comedy and then we have full passes to everything um we sell less of those but they're quite difficult to to push together anyway because there's so many events you'd be 
you be, I mean, I don't quite make it to all the events. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do, I do, I do. I'm, a, I'm always at a bit of every event, but I'd never quite managed to sit it down <laughs> because I'm racing yeah. around. But, but it's 31, 32 events. So it's quite a lot of events over a weekend. But again, we, we sell those. So there are people that come to everything. I think if you're a fan of comedy, I think the, 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 the connection for me is because I'm a fan of all of this stuff. And I'm a fan. I love the Beatles, so I'm happy to go and see Hard Day's Night, which we're screening. Right. And to have that alongside Life of Brian and then to sit and watch Speedy with Kevin Brown introducing it. So it's all brilliant comedy to me. And it's joyous. And they're just from different periods, really. And But I think what happens for us is that, obviously, Michael Palin coming to chat to somebody is is a really broad, popular program. So that will sell out and then something like speedy with harold lloyd we'd have to work harder to fill the auditorium and and make that work as an event because you get the core audience and then we've got on top of that members of the public coming because they're curious so i would say it's um it's a bit of a mixture really so and and it, it is a bit i would agree that it's a it's a really unusual festival isn't it i mean i look at it myself sometimes and think it's a bit it is an unusual, and it's called slapstick, and it isn't really technically even slapstick. So it's a very confusing festival in some ways, <laughs> branding-wise. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a snappy. It's a snappy title that we originally we thought would work as a strong brand to, that people might remember. Um, and then, of course, we have some confusion. We get people come to us who are clowns or or performers, and they say, "Oh, I want to come to slapstick festival," but actually, they they want to do like this very physical sort of thing. Um, and of course it is. Yeah, and that's always a part and aspect of it, but you couldn't say a private function is slapstick or right. you wouldn't say that, you know, uh, I suppose there are elements in, in spinal tap right, and that kind of thing, but, um, 18 inch you know, but, uh, stonehenge. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of yes. thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there are these, those funny moments, um, in that too. But it's interesting. Um, mm. I was looking at a couple of the programs. Uh, you have someone who's been on the podcast again, uh, David Crump, talking about uh, Fred Carno. Yeah, yeah. And then there's a program called uh, A Violin Over the Head that sort of focuses yeah. on, uh, I guess we'd say, you know, like vaudeville or music hall type performers of that era. You know, I think a lot yeah. of a lot of rare film fans would know little titch and his his routine with with the extra long shoes and things yeah. like that yeah well that i mean i think that's that's again the important heritage even further back for us too um when we're looking at music hall or the origins before silent comedy or even during the same period so with the violin over the head uh we've got we have there's a uh, a performer comedian but also an academic um, who, who's, a, who's a, um, a lecturer, Oliver Double, who's hosting that for us. And he's been sort of co-producing that with um, David Robinson, who has an interest in this too. Yeah. So David's been liaising with him and they've been choosing selections of, um, of I suppose, early, for the most part, early talky films that have been made of those great performers and captured and just offering a context in situ, really. And then uh, 
yeah, David's coming. He came last year and I think brought his book and it just, you know, flew out the door really because everyone was interested. And we've invited him back to talk more about the book and we have somebody on stage, Andrew Kelly, who's going to be speaking to him about this. Also, I should maybe mention that the plan would be to we have a YouTube channel and these events, whilst they're not streaming live, you know, some months after the festival, we will probably be putting some of these up on YouTube. So they would be then accessible for people to have a look at. And nice. we've already got some of the older events that are on on there already, really. But again, it's a, a variety of, of different different things. And it's difficult with the silent films, of course, because screening those or putting those on YouTube often have rights implications and sure. this kind of thing. But the conversations are the things that we would we would have ownership of really. But yes, yeah, so it's those it's those kind of conversations really of um, people coming together and an opportunity to ask questions too, really, and put things in their historical context. I think it's a fascinating insight into uh, the early, if you're a fan of, of Stan and Ollie, uh, Stan and Laura in particular, and Charlie, and n- wanting to know more about their heritage through Fred Carno. It's, a, it's an extensive piece of work, isn't it? The books are really thorough well-researched yeah. deep dive into Fred Carno's story, yeah. And yeah, you've got this uh, Charlie's London. That's another book, I guess, that's coming out. A, uh, yes, yes. A, yeah, Aisha, who, who, who lives in the – she lives in the – quite near to the old workhouse building, which is now the Cinema Museum in, in, in London. Um, yeah, she, she's been a passionate champion of – Charlie's heritage and then she started this Kickstarter campaign which was a huge success and she's produced I think a number of I think it's the same graphic novel but it has different artwork and different covers and different editions and she's bringing some of those to talk about it but it's again it's another great way of engaging people and audiences and there's such a there's another world of of graphic novel um, fans and people who will engage with that medium in a, in a different way to, because I mean, the Fred Carno book's brilliant, isn't it? But if you're a certain visual person, you'd probably want to read the graphic novel of Carno's story. It would be a lot easier to, to get through, you know, but, um, and again, it's a shame because this year, and we're going to make up for it the next year, I think, because we've neglected Charlie a bit this year, but usually we would have at least one of his films and, um, we don't this year. So it, that's the only event really that features Charlie. So, um, but as I say, I think we'll make up for it with a, with a big live event next year. He's, he'll be all right for a year, I would yeah. think. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Raymond Griffith needs a bit of a push. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, we've got to get him out there as well. But yeah. yeah. Well, even um, Lloyd, yeah. I mean, Lloyd is, uh, you know, not as well remembered, but I mean, his best mm. films go over so well. Yeah. It's fabulous to watch. Every time we've screened um, Safety Last with an audience, with a live audience, there's there's always an audible gasp at certain moments because right. it's so compelling and it's so brilliant and it's such a work of genius. The, just the positioning of the camera and the peril that's conveyed 100 years ago, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's um, As you say, it works so well with audiences. Oh, I should just... Just I was thinking about Laurel and Hardy. So Laurel and Hardy, every year we invite somebody who is famous, certainly in the UK, um, to come and talk about why they love 
Lauren Hardy. And that's been an event that's been a huge win, if you like, in Bristol. But, uh, and again, it's one of those events that it wouldn't be a, a Sons of the Desert sort of deeper dive into some of the more obscure films. Although we've done that, we've had, we've had, you know, Stan or Ollie and we've had the solo films and we've had some lots of rare silent film, but often we find an actor or a, somebody who is just passionate, a comedian who loves Laurel Hardy. And we, we put them on uh, to, to introduce their favorite shorts. And that, as I say, we've, we've, we've run one event. I think we had with 900 people huh. in situ with a performer called Lee Mack, who's a big TV comedian star here. So I think a lot came to see him, um, but also they sort of fell in love with Stan and Lolly there as well. And, and of course they, they are, we, we did some, we did some research with some young people. So we found some people who were in their late teens and early twenties, and we did a bit of market research that so we showed them a series of different extracts from films and what we found was with Charlie Chaplin, we ran a sequence and initially people enjoyed Charlie and then I can't remember the exact sequence that we use now, but I remember the feedback was initially enjoying it and then got a bit bored was the feedback. This is very general. I'm, I haven't got the data in front of me, so I'm just kind of sure. paraphrasing and remembering what happened really. And the the most recognizable, the ones that everybody recognized. Now that's not true. Some people didn't recognize Lauren Hardy, but the most, the highest rating and most engaged and the most, the ones that the groups said they would want to see again and see more of was Lauren Hardy. Hmm. So they came off very well. Buster Keaton came off very well too. Harold Lloyd, not as much really. Yeah. So it was interesting. And we didn't, we didn't go more, obscure than that because we knew the audiences were not were not knowledgeable about any silent right. comedy so it was just fascinating to see that that stan and ollie seemed to immediately engage with with audiences and i don't know i don't know if that's partly because i think we used we had a silent sequence and a talkie sequence so it might be partly that too because it is another medium i don't know if you have any thoughts on that or how you've sort of experienced audiences with you know or passion for the different performers and how that goes down yeah well i just remember i mean my kids were exposed to a lot of things and and liked most of them but i just remember one of them sort of asking me after giggling hilariously at laurel and hardy why are they so funny you know almost <laughs> like he was in pain <laughs> you know so yeah 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 oh I know it's, it's fabulous. You know, one of the great joys of, of running the festival here is just seeing the audience response. Like you said, you know, when you do get the audiences in, there's still this kind of joyous sort of explosion of, of fun and laughter that still it's still there. And, and as you say, with young, young audiences, particularly, I mean, I can't, I can't remember. How, so I don't know how long ago it was, but we were screening some some shorts and I think it was easy street and I was in the front row of the cinema in Bristol and there was this young boy, I reckon about five, five years old or so. And he laughed so hard at the sequence, <laughs> the sequence where Charlie's being, when the gas lamps pulled over his head and right. there's all that action. 
and he fell off his seat laughing. And that was just <laughs> wonderful to see because it just, you know, there's nothing like a child uncontrollably laughing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It just adds to it, you know. And um, that's why it's so important to celebrate these films and keep them alive, I think, because they're special, you know. The Slapstick Festival runs February 14th through 19th. Links for the program, including online programs at their website, and for their YouTube channel, will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. As a film-producing country, Norway has long been overshadowed by Sweden next door, and it registers even less for silent comedy. But Nitrateville member Snorri Smari Matisen has written a biography of Norway's one notable silent comic and his one movie. From Artisan's Son to Hamlet, The Life of August Schoenman, Comedy King of Norway, now in English from Bear Manor Media. I spoke with him from Oslo and asked, who was August Schoenman? For, for about a decade, from 1915 to 1925, uh, August Schoenman was the most popular comedian in Norway uh, by far. And um, he, he did not come from a theatrical family. Um, he was born uh, August Pettersson Jr. in, in 1991 as the last of, of seven children and, um, and began his, his career singing uh, comic songs as a teenager. Um, and they eventually adopted Schoenman as a stage name, which was uh, the surname of his paternal grandfather. In 1915, he had his, his true uh, breakthrough in uh, the first uh, review of a newly opened variety theater in, in Oslo, or Christiania, as, as the city was, was then called Norway's capital city. And he reached a level of renown which, which no other Norwegian comedian had, uh, had done before. Um, in, in fact, in, in retrospect, uh, Schoenmann's sometimes been, been nicknamed Norway's Charlie Chaplin, um, which of course makes sense if one considers the, um, the period during which both comedians were active and, uh, and they reached their widest popularity. Um, but, uh, but I think it's less accurate when one considers the, the respective comedy styles, which uh, which brought the two comedians to fame. So uh, obviously Chaplin had background in in British Music Hall and portrayed a number of characters on stage before entering films. Um, but it was primarily for a specific character, the Little Tram character, that he achieved great fame. Um, whereas Schoenmann on the other hand became known as this, um, this, this man of a thousand faces almost. Um, in uh, in reviews, he played an endless variety of uh, of comic figures and and personalities, uh, almost like a sort of Peter Sellers. Al yeah. Although Peter Sellers wasn't even born at that point, of course. Sure. But, <laughs> <laughs> and it was especially for for his work in in reviews that he became 
truly beloved, um, where he would typically do brief sketches playing everything and anything, uh, really. He would often play uh, comic relief in various operettas, uh, for which he usually also received praise. Um, but the operettas were, of course, tightly scripted, whereas the, the reviews gave him better opportunity to, to showcase his, his skills as an ad-libber and an improviser. Reading about it, it sounded like he was he's very similar to many music hall comedians. Um, played in yeah. th- you know played in things like the Mikado, but at the same time, you know would do topical humor. I mean, at one point he's coming out on stage as Kaiser Wilhelm, which is yeah. <laughs> kind of surprising. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And not particularly interested in film, I guess. No, uh, of course. Um... It's it's hard to tell really uh, because uh, the, the the Norwegian film industry at that point was so modest that it, it was hardly an industry uh, at all uh, really. He he did this one film which in in Norwegian is is entitled Sarlet uh, på uh, pinne. A literal translation of that would be uh, love on a stick, but but it actually means uh, it's it's the Norwegian term for for uh, lollipop. Uh. <laughs> I I do think it's accurate to call that film, which was a four-reeler uh, released in, in 1922. I, I do think it's accurate to call it the first major film comedy made in Norway. Um, it was certainly the first true attempt at an almost feature-length uh, Norwegian slapstick comedy. It was indeed a big hit at the box office in Norway at the time of its release. Um, but having said that, um, production-wise, it's obviously a relatively simple affair for for the most part um certainly when compared to what uh filmmakers were doing in hollywood by then or even in in sweden and denmark actually it's kind of an amateur film to some extent it's you know it was filmed on the property of the director i think yeah so they're just kind of clowning around his house um so it kind of has that almost home movie feel but at the same time i mean you can see that Schoenman is a real performer and, you know, they're just kind of giving him his chance to do his thing in various ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, Live Sinding, who worked as a sort of assistant on the film, uh, who is actually a rather uh, controversial figure in, in original film history for, for other reasons, but 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 anyway, he uh, he recalled that that uh, their ambition had been to just produce a brief uh, one real film, but in the end they wound up with with like I said um, four reels, uh, forty five minutes, um, which is arguably impressive in an Norwegian context at the time. Um, although, as I write in the book, we can uh, perhaps assume that. Artistic ambitions were not the only or even the, the primary reason why the film became longer than intended. It, it probably had a lot to do with, with the fact that Sherman and, and the rest of the crew had had, had a great time shooting it. Um, <laughs> and uh, the theater at which Sherman uh, worked at the time, Casino, was not thrilled that he had appeared in the film without their permission. Um, but, uh, but the public seems to have loved it. Uh, whereas um, the critics were more mixed, to, to put it mildly. Um, it got some decent reviews, and um, 
and almost everyone thought uh, Schoenman did did a good performance. But but several critics also also panned the film and thought it was just uh, just uh, childish. Um, and uh, and and indeed, I I do have a mixed opinions about the film myself. Honestly, um, it has its moments and. And of course, it, it has to be viewed in in context of, of uh, the time and place in in which it was it in which it was made. Um, one one thing about the film I, I think worth pointing out is is that audiences who, who watched the film in 1922 knew Schoenmann from from the stage. So, although the film was obviously without sound, the public quite likely. Imagine Schoenmann's voice as right. they watched it, <laughs> uh, which which must have made it funner to them in and of itself. By 1922 standards, certain scenes just feel too long without much happening, really. And it seems obvious, in my opinion, that that Schoenmann didn't didn't take the film very seriously, like like you also uh, suggested. Um, he, he certainly took it much less seriously than his than his stage work although at the same time i mean i I'd, I'd say that it's it's firmly in the you know in the same realm as a lot of short comedies i mean it, it's effectively you know a half hour to 40 minutes when you run at a little faster speed like you suggested yeah. to me um yeah, so you know it, it's not unlike a lot of the second tier comedians that you see back then the plot is very similar in that it's two guys who have a rivalry for the same girl uh yeah one of them being a preposterous choice for her, which is shunaman yeah yeah so yeah. um you know it, it's certainly recognizable where it comes out of in terms of where world comedy was at that point yeah yeah that's that's true shunaman's character is yeah, he's is not not very sympathetic uh, throughout the film, uh, or uh, yeah, is is a, a total douchebag. In, yeah, in <laughs> yeah. I was trying to think who he really reminded me of. I mean, a little yeah. bit of Stan Laurel, but then yeah. I thought, you know, who he really looks like is Hugh Laurie. It's sort of like yeah. Hugh Laurie playing yeah. Bertie Wooster in a silent comedy. Yeah, that's that's true. I, I hadn't thought thought of that, but uh, yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Yeah. All right. So he made this one film, didn't try again, and then uh, got sick and died at an early age. Uh, Probably sometime in the first half of 1924 at, at the mere age of, of uh, 32, 33, um, he, he began to suffer uh, severe uh, health issues, uh, chest pains and fatigue and so on, which grew increasingly worse as as the months went by uh, the illness led him to cancel all obligations in in january 25 and and he passed away uh, a month later do people remember him in norway is is he a name or is is he kind of for you know lost to theater history yeah no sadly um uh, today even in norway uh if people know August Schoenmann, uh, they will know him as the father of, uh, of Aud Schoenmann, um, an extremely beloved actress and, and comic performer who passed away in, in 2006. Um, and um, personally, I have lots of memories uh, watching 
out in, in my childhood. Uh, she was one of my favorite performers. Um, um, I mean, both in terms of vocal delivery and, and mimicry. Um, she was, um, I mean, it's, it's just an overused word perhaps, but, uh, but she was one of very, very few uh, Norwegian comic performers, I would probably call a genius. Um, yeah. <laughs> she, she, was, she was incredible. Yeah, as, as I read about her in, in my childhood, I eventually became aware of, of her father, Åge Schönman, and, uh, and there was something about him that really caught my attention. Um, yeah, I mean, here, here you had this, um, in the Norwegian context, this, this huge star who, who passed away so, so early. Um, there seemed to be something, uh, something deeply tragic, of course, uh, because of his early, early passing. Uh, but also something fascinating about the story. It almost came across as a sort of fairy tale-like figure to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, so th- that was the seed, I guess, for what eventually turned into into this book. I, I think it's worth point- worth uh, pointing out, perhaps, that other than his career, uh, when it came to finding reliable info on him, uh, we have. Very few comments from him on on his private life, uh, so so that was uh, yeah. I I did quite a lot of of research trying to find as many primary sources as I could as I could uh, dig up for for uh, uh, the book, and um, along with uh, surviving accounts from from his friends and and so on, I um, I hope that the book gives a reasonably full rounded account of, of his life. Snorri Smari Matisson's From Artisan's Son to Hamlet, The Life of August Schoenemann, Comedy King of Norway, is out now from Bear Manor Media. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Didn't you ever hear of Nancy Voorhees? Why, she shot a guy 20 years ago. I think that woman suffered enough. She had a right to kill that man. We're putting her on trial again. Sneaking around about it with morals and warnings to young girls. Can't you see what this might do to her family? Oh, say, George. What? You think we're ever going to crash the big time? Well, we're doing all right, ain't we? I'm certainly sick of these layoffs. That automat don't spell home to me. Well, we don't live there. Do everything but sleep there. We'd be doing that if we could get beds into them slots. I dare say you and Jim could manage very well, even if you didn't work, Agnes. We'd manage a darn sight better, Mother, and that's the truth. Yes, I could spend all day taking care of the darn house for you cooking your meals and washing your dishes and thinking how marvelous it'll be when you get home at night. Couldn't ever go anywhere because we couldn't afford it. You'd know just where I was and just what I was doing all the time. See so much of one another, we couldn't possibly like each other for being decent, like not wearing any clothes. Underneath your... What do you know about me underneath? Huh? Uh, uh, I mean... uh... Oh, I know what you mean, yo, sugar. (laughs) You watch out, I'm falling in love with you. (laughs) And oh boy, when love comes at my age. Many times I held that hand. How many times I... Everything between you and me is past, forgotten. I left you in that whole rotten life. Came out here and I started fresh and clean. 
I've worked pretty hard for what I've got, and I'm not going to lose it now. Not for you, not for anybody. You might recognize the voice of Aline McMahon in these clips from movies like Gold Diggers of 1933 and Five Star Final with Edward G. Robinson. Then again, you might not. A character actress, often playing older women when she was still in her 20s and 30s, McMahon turns out to have one of the most interesting lives of a character actor from the early days of talkies, as one of the people who introduced a new style of acting to the movies and theater, what came to be known as The Method. Twenty years before Brando and Clift, she was acclaimed for the naturalism of her performances. And that's the story that John Stanglin tells in Aline McMahon, Hollywood, the Blacklist, and the Birth of Method Acting, from University Press of Kentucky. Stanglin, who previously wrote a biography of quintessential pre-code star Warren William, also owns Atlas Comics, a comic book shop on the northwest side of Chicago. So to talk Aline McMahon, we met up at his shop and spoke under walls of Superman, Thor, and Donald Duck comics. Hello. Yep. Well, we're here in your comic shop, so uh, you're a comics fan and a old movie fan? Yes, exactly. Um, bo- both of those loves go back to my youth, you know, when I was probably like you know, 9, 10, 11 years old, reading comics. My older brothers left their comics behind, so I inherited all that stuff. So I've been reading comics from a really early age. And then, of course, anybody in Chicago knows all the great movies that were on late night at WGN and, you know, the morning movie with Ione and all those things that you got to see, all the great movies of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So that, that really hooked me. My dad was you know, kind of a movie fan, a passive movie fan. He had seen all that stuff. He was born in 1915, so he saw a lot. And we, we talked about movies a lot, so that's where all that stuff comes from. And then you you did a biography of Warren William. How'd that come about? Well, um, the book came out in uh, late 2010, and I probably started working on it at least five years before that, but... The weird thing is I had seen Warren William many times uh, when I was growing up, and I never really paid attention to him. You know, I saw him in Gold Diggers in 1933 or Imitation of Life or stuff like that, where he wasn't really his quintessential CAD pre-code persona. And then at some point, a friend of mine uh, handed me a videotape and said, here, you should watch these movies. What was on there was Employees' Entrance and Skyscraper Souls which I had never seen, and I was just like completely knocked out. I think anybody who sees those movies for the first time is like, what the hell is this, this?" you know? So I started to do a little rudimentary research on the internet and didn't find very much about him at that time. After a little while, you know, I I started doing a little bit deeper research, and I thought, you know, there's got to be a book in here. And then I thought, well, I guess maybe I'd be the one to write it because nobody else appears to be looking for this. So, you know, I started doing the research. I went up to Aiken, Minnesota, where he's from, and, uh, you know, I got to tour his childhood home. His father ran the newspaper up there, so I got to go into their archives. They're still in there. They're still publishing. And little by little, I pieced this together, and, uh, you know, lo and behold, five or six years later, there was a book. 
you know, I move slowly, but I get it done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think that was kind of the moment when he was being rediscovered, you know, through basically TCM. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't have, in the town I grew up in, we didn't have Warner Brothers films or okay. MGM films really in the libraries of the local TV station. So there's a lot of those people I never saw at all until many years later, yeah. you know. I you know we we saw I I knew Citizen Kane because it was RKO but I didn't see Maltese Falcon until I went to college that kind of thing so yeah. you know it's, that's a really interesting fact that different regions kind of focused on different studios because here in Chicago Warner Brothers was everything I mean I just by looking in the TV guide every week for a number of years I saw huge parts of the filmographies as Edward G Robinson Flynn Cagney Bogart. You know, all those people that worked at Warner's, Betty Davis, and so on. Um, and that stuff was on constantly. But that was a lot of fun. I mean, I got to meet his uh, surviving nieces. Mm-hmm. He and his wife didn't have any children, but his nieces at that time were still alive. I kind of lost touch with them. And, you know, they loved him. They just thought he was a great guy. And, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's a shame that he didn't live longer. Because yeah. I think in the, in the 50s, he... Would have been still relatively young, and he would have he would have picked up a lot of those secondary roles that guys like Jordan McCready and some other people yeah. were were doing. And he, I think, he would have been he would have transitioned into a really interesting, especially in the noir period, or maybe a really interesting villain in that era. Yeah, yeah. All right, so you did a book about Warren <clears throat> William, and I think books about stars, you know, stars have lives of a certain sort you know they have romances with other stars they have rises and falls character actors i mean a lot of people will say oh someone should write a book about you know franklin pangborn or somebody right and it's like you know he probably had other than being gay he probably had this very middle class life and he just showed up for his job and went to work sure. you know it's like what am i today you know i'm i'm an indian chief or a hotel manager right. who knows right um writing the biography of a of a character actor of a supporting person that has to be something else to their life you know hopefully they shot somebody or did something interesting <laughs> um so yeah, that's kind of the, the surprise for me with Aline McMahon was just how much of a life she turned out to have. Exactly. Tell me about which, that. Yeah, which I, I, you know, wouldn't have expected when I started doing the research. Um, you know, I I really started the whole thing because again I had seen her a number of times when I was younger, but. About 10 years ago, I watched Five Star Final. That's her first movie with Edward G. Robinson. And this is 1931, and I thought, oh, my God, she looks so modern. What she's doing seems so different than what everybody else in the cast is doing. So I kind of got intrigued by her. I wasn't thinking about writing about her, maybe like an article or something. And so I started, like, tinkering around with the research and such. And, you know, eventually I got to this point where one of the big revelations of the book is that she is the original method actor in America. So we tend to think of method acting coming, you know, mainly through Montgomery Clift and then Brando, of course, you know, so late, late 40s, early 50s. And if you did a little more research, you'd find, you know, John Garfield came out of the group theater in New York. He was method trained. And you, you know, you can even go a little bit further back. Marie Ausmanskaya did some things in the, the mid-30s. 
But what I discovered was that the first teaching class of the method in America was in 1923. There were 10 students. Elaine McMahon was one of them. And she was the only one of those 10 people that went on to any success on Broadway or in movies. And that in both of those cases, she is the first American to learn the technique here to be on stage and on screen using that technique, which became so important after the war and you know when Brando came in that everybody migrated to that style of acting and that teaching. So that was the first time where I thought, there might be a book in here because that's important. It pushes the, the history of the method back right. uh, much further than, than we've known before. Um, and then gradually other little tidbits of things that came out about her life that were you know pretty much unknown she was you know blacklisted during the communist scare era and she was investigated by the FBI um, you know I was able to get the FBI files through the Freedom of Information <laughs> Act um, so you know a lot of fascinating factors that that led me to say, you know, there probably is a book here. The question is, does anybody want to read it? Does anybody <laughs> want to publish it? You know, um, so it it just took off from there, and and I I think it does turn into a a real narrative of a story of a person's life. Yeah. Um, also, because um, when she was in Hollywood, you know, her husband lived in New York City. He was an architect. He had an architectural firm there. They exchanged a lot of letters. Those letters were saved. So you, looking through those thousands and thousands of letters that cover decades, it really does give you a narrative of her life as a, as a as an artist, as an actor, uh, his life as also a creative person, an architect, and and their union together and how they supported each other in their artistic endeavors. So I think it's a really interesting story. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. He he did the art museum in my hometown, Wichita. So, oh, really? Yeah, I know. So I, I, the... I knew his work, uh, Yeah, you know, from going there in fourth grade or whatever. Yeah, and he himself is a fascinating guy. They're, they're both very interesting, you know, liberal souls. But, um, you know, there have been a number of books about him, and he was important in the Greenbelt movement and the yeah. revival of, you know, this kind of idea of the community being part of the environment instead of destroying the environment, you know, yeah. creating something new. So, yeah, so she, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you start with her family background, which mostly, I mean, like a lot of movie people, mostly Jewish, although she's oddly Irish-Jewish. Exactly. As McMahon suggests. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you you don't know if that wasn't Finkelstein to begin with or something. <laughs> right. um, but... By the time her generation comes around, I mean, she went to Barnard. I mean, lived a pretty elite life at that point. Uh, and her movie career, <laughs> I mean, her stage and movie career both seemed to be pretty blessed. She was she was acclaimed as a stage actress very quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, did things like, you know, was directed by Eugene O'Neill in one of his plays and stuff like that. Knew all the people that you would expect to know back then, like John Reed and uh, the woman who was Thomas Wolfe's uh, mistress. Yeah, Aline Bernstein. Yeah. Everyone was named Aline then. I don't know why, yeah, where that came from. It's fallen out of favor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then goes to Hollywood and and sort of 
berates Warner Brothers into this special contract where she can leave Hollywood half the year and go be in plays or see her husband or whatever she wants to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, a pretty privileged life for a movie person. Yeah, there, there's no doubt. And the, the good thing is that she was aware of it. She understood her privilege and she understood um, that she was not just talented, but lucky to be in the right places at the right time. She was a big believer in luck and the yeah. idea that she had been been able to do a lot of things that a lot of other people haven't been able to do. But at the same time, I think it is a level of talent and a level of dedication to yourself that she she worked hard at what she did and, um, you know, bore, bore the fruits of, of that. One of her big uh, stage breakthroughs early on was this play called Maya that proved to be a scandal. Uh, tell, tell us about that. Well, um, so this this was 1927. So Maya is a play by uh, a European playwright, Simon Gantillon, and uh, the people from the Neighborhood Playhouse, which is where she spent a lot of time in, in the mid-20s, um, had been over there and seen this play, which is about a prostitute in Marseille who... Basically, the play is about the various men that she sees during the course of her day. So the men who come into her her place for whatever reason. So, you know, that's part of the interest of the play is some of them come there for, you know, uh, for somebody just to be close to. They Or people who, you know, men who want to talk to her or, you know, of course, there's men who want to have sex. But it's all these different characters that come in. And anyway... Uh, they decided to bring it to New York and to have Aline play the lead. Well, at that time in New York, uh, Broadway theater was pretty sanitized. Um, and they had something they called the Wales Padlock Act, which could close any play unilaterally. You could just close it without any, uh, uh, without any, legis- without any other legislation or, or um, legal action the district attorney could just close it if they deemed it immoral. And so uh, Maya, considering that it was about a prostitute and showed the men coming to her room, uh, the district attorney's office decided that it was indeed immoral. So this became a huge cause celeb among the, you know, the glitterati of, you know, New York theater uh, that... This was suppression, this was censorship, this was, uh, you know, the decision of one man to decide what is immoral or what is not immoral could could destroy a play, which is what happened. Um, it was, it, it stayed open only for 10 days, and it, it was a big story in New York. It was in every newspaper. There were calls for the mayor to step in. There were petitions from all the big names in, you know, the American theater and uh, other aspects of the entertainment community. There were people like uh, the Vanderbilts who signed those petitions to keep the play open. So uh, it was a big story, but at the bottom of it was the fact that Elaine McMahon got these incredible reviews for 
for this production. And again, it goes back to this idea of naturalism. It goes back to people observing like, wow, she is, again, behaving. She is the character. She's not performing the character. She, it feels like she has become the character. So she got a lot of incredible uh, press from that and became sort of the critical darling of the people in the know at the time. I was able to go up to the Schubert uh, archives in New York City and they have a huge uh, set of files uh, just on Maya. There was so much newspaper reporting and stuff, it was just stacks and stacks of, uh, of clippings about it. And it was, it's a fascinating story. It takes up a, a decent part of the book. Um, and it's, uh, it's definitely one of the more interesting uh, events of Broadway in the 1920s. Yeah. So, I mean, going back to her and the method. So she got involved with a director named Richard Boleslavsky. I actually just watched his last film, Theodore Goes Wild. Yeah, I um, saw that years ago. Yeah, it's on Criterion Channel right now, so I watched it the other night. Um, and it's kind of funny to read about, you know, he's this Pole, I think, who went to Russia and learned all this stuff. And, you know, by the mid-30s, he's directing, you know, screwball comedies in right. Hollywood. It's just yeah. kind of how everybody's career goes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, her, her influence... I mean, I don't know that you wouldn't really point to anybody who started doing Aline McMahon in that time, you know, acting like she acted. It was mm -hmm. kind of a one-off. The few people who came in her wake were really just people who got trained by those successors to Boleslavsky and, and the other people who started. To, just to go back real quick is, so Boleslavsky had been, you're right, in Russia. He had worked directly with Stanislavsky, who is the or originator of the method. And I think he started, Stanislavski started kind of codifying the method around 1906, 1907, and Boleslavski goes almost that far back with Stanislavski. But he left, there was some danger in Russia that he, after the revolution that he might be imprisoned for whatever reason. So he left, and he had been in New York when the Stanislavski troupe came to New York to do uh, performances using the method. Um, and he kind of hooked back up with them. Well, when they left in the spring of 1923, Boleslavsky decided to start a school. And the first school was just this ad hoc thing in upstate New York where they rented a, or somebody provided a mansion for them for the 10 people to come and live and learn for a couple of months. After Aline took this to Broadway and then eventually to Hollywood, in the meantime, people like Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg, who were kind of like offshoots of the next generation of what Boleslavsky had done. Uh, Maria Ouspenskaya is another one who came from Russia and stayed and started teaching also with Boleslavsky. Which so, is funny because we don't think of her roles at all being that way. I mean, she seems a very normal character actor yeah. playing gypsy women in The Wolfman and things like that. Right. And it's not exactly Streetcar Named Desire. <laughs> right, and I think she is kind of like, she's got that style, even if you look at Dodsworth or Love Affair, which is wonderful. I mean. Yeah. But she's always playing Marie Ausmanskaya, you know. Um, but, so, you're right. I don't think there's a direct lineage from Aline necessarily to other people. There's a direct lineage from the teaching 
mm -hmm. to other people that came after her. So, you know, Franchatone, <clears throat> which I didn't realize until I did the research for this book, was method trained. And Marie Ospenskaya, they both came in in the early 30s, kind of like a couple of years after Aline started in 31. So gradually it's the teaching that's seeding all those other people. Okay. Whether, whether it's through group theater or whether it's through the f fractionalized teachers that moved off and doing their own little schooling and, and those kinds of things. And Marie Ospenskaya had that school for a long time after Boleslavsky left to go to Hollywood. She kind of like reconstituted his little teaching school and that's where tons of other people started to come from. Right. That's that's the era. Brando and Montgomery Clift are kind of the first or the first popular or the first well known. Right. And people don't look too back back too far beyond that. But, you know, Garfield was so huge when he came in uh, in the late thirties and and that's really you know, that's really the first super popular and well-known person who used the method in Hollywood. And, you know, of course, before that, you had the people we've talked about, including Aline. But there was never any real talk about her connection to the method until many years later, until really you started to, that became kind of a household, right. you know, term, the method acting, uh, until people realized, like, oh, she's one of those people, too. Yeah. No, it's just it's just kind of like where she went to school, you know. It right, wasn't because yeah. people didn't have a conception of what the method was. Right. It was. Yeah. yeah. It was. It was a very. I mean, in 1923, it wasn't known anywhere except maybe at the neighborhood playhouse in New York, which yeah. is where it debuted. And you know, they they talked about. Of course, it wasn't called the method then. Stanislavski called it the system, but nobody was even really talking about that. They're just like, oh, these people have been learning this new acting technique in New York and now they're doing it uh, here on stage and you know that's really the way it was really until the Garfield era. Yeah now I thought it was interesting I had never thought about this but you say it kind of comes out of you know the situation in Russia you know one one authoritarian system replaced by another you know it could be dangerous for an actor to be I don't know, explicit about certain things, so instead you're looking for a way to internalize it and express the truth of it without necessarily, you know, calling attention to precisely what you're saying about, you know, the nature of serfs and a checkoff play or whatever. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think um, the, the idea, not just for actors, but everybody in Russia who went through you know, the autocratic era of the czars, and then the czars are overthrown, and then you have this, like, repressive area of the communists who are looking for people who are doing and saying things contrary to the state. It's like, you have to internalize almost everything. You have yeah. to watch all the words that you say. You have to... And if you want to... I think if you want to communicate and find other people who are kind of like-minded, you have to have these internal signals. You have to have these indications of how you think and feel without being overt about it. So I think it is it is probably a different uh, public mentality than we have in the West, in which we can say anything we want, anytime we want. We don't have any fear, of, or we don't have much fear of repercussions yeah. uh, about what we think and feel, but the I think the Russians, especially in that era, 
uh, did have those fears. So it was a matter of, yes, I think, I think they were well suited to pick up on those ideas of like internal thoughts and feelings, repressed ideas, and how do you communicate them without saying them or being overt about it. Yeah. So what did people see in her when she first started doing movies? What, what was the effect of her? Well, the thing that, that comes out again and again in reviews and uh, from the critics is this idea of naturalism. And that goes back to the method training. Uh, they call her, you know, the most disarmingly natural performer they had ever seen. Or uh, They recognize these ideas that without knowing anything about the method, that that level of honesty and performance and naturalism in front of the camera uh, was really her hallmark at that time. Uh, because we know when we, you know, we go back and look at movies, especially from the early 30s, there is a certain style that is a little more declarative and a little more straightforward. If you look at somebody like Edward G. Robinson, who is very forceful, and it is a bit of a, you know, it is a performance. Whereas I think what people were seeing when she came is she's behaving, not performing. Um, so I think that was what everybody noticed. And then as she had some really good uh, comedic roles, she started doing, you know, she did Once in a Lifetime, which is the Moss Hart, uh, George Kaufman play that she originally did on Broadway, and then she was in The Road Company that came to Los Angeles. That's how she was discovered by uh, Mervyn Leroy <clears throat> and signed to a contract. Um, when she started doing those type of comedic roles with these, you know, acerbic characters who were observing from the outside really cynically, um, the audience is just really related to that. And a lot of the critics were just like, yes, this is the next generation of the great comedians that we've had. You know, she was often compared to Zazu Pitts of all people. <laughs> and so I think that, that was what really drove it, those two competing parts is that, that naturalism and that, that kind of warmth that she had in those performances and then the acerbic comedian and there was a little bit of a divided loyalties there i think warner brothers when they finally signed her a couple of years later they knew that the comedian moved the turnstiles more than the dramatic actress did so they kind of like like they did for everybody you know cagney's always a, a gangster and flynn is always a you know uh, an adventurer and swashbuckler so i think they kind of subtly wanted to push her in that way because they really felt that's where the box office was yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the the Warner Brothers, you, you quote a, a whole section of how people wrote about her then. And that, you know, there's like a lot of pieces that are pretty brutal about, yeah, she's no beauty, but <laughs> like, thanks. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's surprising that uh, they were just that brazen. They would just say... You know, she's not attractive. Somebody even called her almost mannish. Uh, but they, then they would always, of course, laud her acting ability like that. That was what it was all about. They, you know, there were places, that, uh, publications that called her one of the ten best actresses in the world. Um, there was a poll in a British magazine for who is the best, the most versatile actress. And Aline McMahon won the top honors in, I think, 1933. Uh, so, uh, it is just interesting that 
we know in the 30s Hollywood was obsessed with glamour you know they were they were obsessed with people like Joan Crawford and Garbo and you know Aline was of course not in that category how, how many people are but I think she had a certain level of beauty I guess audiences and critics didn't see it that way then they just saw somebody who's like not good looking a face for a character actress but actress but not much more than that yeah well I think you know the idea of what a beautiful woman should look like was pretty tightly understood then mm-hmm. and she had basically kind of ethnic looks i mean you couldn't really look like john garfield until john garfield either right you know because sort of obviously <clears throat> jewish and new york type and stuff yeah. like that yeah you certainly couldn't be like the leading man with the without with the for example every g robinson who is clearly ethnic but he was always like primarily a character guy very rarely what we would call a leading man in romantic parts right kind of like Um, Lon Chaney he's he's really kind of a character star exactly and and somebody like Garfield comes along and you're right he suddenly is this leading man that women find attractive and and magnetic Um, so yes Aline's looks were different enough from the standard from what they were manufacturing as beauty in the in the 30s that's for sure now as one might expect once warner's figured out what to typecast her as that was all they'd put her in and i think you say at one point her last five films at uh, warner brothers all put her opposite guy kibbe yeah you know, and it's like it's a wonder they didn't wind up playing Ma and Pa Kettle at some point. Yeah, they they probably would have tried if they had the rights. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but you know, I, you know from reading the book, she loved Guy Kabish. She thought he was a wonderful partner, a great actor. She had so much fun with him, but she was just like, I just can't keep doing this over and over and over again. So she tried for, you know, almost two years to get them not to take, pick up her option. Right. Uh, even though she's making, you know, in 1934, she's making $3,000 a week, and she's like, I can't do this anymore. i got to get out of here. Yeah, which, as you point out, is like double the annual uh, typical salary, average salary in America at right. that point. Yeah, for, for one week's salary, right? Yeah, yeah she, she's going to be stuck playing a certain character if she's playing opposite Guy Kibbe. I mean, it's just... You know, you're gonna be his wife who like straightens him out when he, you know, does something foolish. I mean, it's just the way it's gonna be. Yeah, exactly. Because they're they're simultaneously typecasting Guy Kibbe as kind of like the bumbling husband who thinks he knows everything but doesn't, and the wife has to kind of lead him to the proper choices and so yeah. on. Yeah. And they do that terrible version of Babbitt, unfortunately. Oh, and, you know, she, of course, had read Sinclair Lewis, probably knew him. I can't remember if she'd met him at some point. But, you know, it's just like all all the fangs taken out and all the the intelligence sort of taken out of Babbitt. Yeah, exactly. Even though Gibby sort of seems like good casting in it, but well, the script I, just wasn't there. Yeah, exactly. I think they they both would have been great casting if you had a really good director and a really good script. I think they could have done a great version of, of the book. Um, and it was a huge disappointment to her. Um, she wanted to quit on the spot, but, uh, you know, they, they threatened a lot of uh, legal contretemps if she had left the studio, and she acquiesced, and it, it was... I think that was one of the biggest disappointments of the of of her 
Warner Brother era service. Though she did have one, I would say one success. I don't know that it was that, that it was any kind of hit, but uh, the film that's kind of been rediscovered is Heat Lightning, which she found as a play. Right. Yeah, she had seen it on Broadway uh, with Jean Dixon, who coincidentally was the woman who had done Once in a Lifetime on Broadway. So she wound up taking over Once in a Lifetime for the movie version, and Jean Dixon was in Heat Lightning on Broadway, and Aline wound up doing that uh, in the movies too. But I, I agree 100%. To me, that's that's probably the most satisfyingly successful, creatively, a movie that she did, especially as a star. Um, and it's... It's a really interesting picture. I mean, we know it's it's got that pre-code pedigree. There's a lot of interesting things going on there. You know, unpunished murder and rape and so on. But it's also a, a proto-noir. I mean, it's so dark and it's so foreboding. Um, you know, it's kind of like Ace in the Hole or, yeah. or something like that. Uh, yeah, there was just a whole series on the <clears throat> Criterion Channel of, like, desert noir. Yeah. And that's kind of what Heat Lightning is. Yeah, definitely. So, Yeah, I mean, it's got a really tawdry look and feel to it, which is just fascinating. And uh, I think it's one of Aline's best performances. Um, the, the woman who's kind of trapped by her transgressive past and trying to get away from it, but then, of course, that past arrives again and she has to struggle with the, the temptations that she thought she was burying. You know? Yeah. So really interesting. So she leaves Warner Brothers in the mid-30s, goes to MGM for a bit, does a good version of Kind Lady, which was remade in the 50s. I kind of prefer the 30s version just because it's it's creepier. Yeah, the, I, I think that's exactly the, the, the uh, word for it. It's creepier. It's kind of like grotesque in some ways, uh, in a good way. I mean, because it, it ratchets up that kind of anxiety and fear um, that... For people who maybe haven't seen it, you know, Aline plays uh, a middle-aged woman. You know, they would call him a spinster then, but she probably was like 36 when she made that, (laughs) you know. Um, And I guess she had lost her fiancé, I think it was, during the First World War. So she kind of like retreats into this big house with her art collection and so on. And, you know, Basil Rathbone gets wind of this. Of course, Basil Rathbone has to be the villain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he gets wind of this, and he goes in to try to swindle her out of her art and basically winds up holding her hostage with some other reprobates. Um, but, yeah, it is it is creepy. It has kind of an odd grotesquery to it. And, yeah, I think it, I think it was a, a creatively successful picture. I don't know how it did at the box office. Yeah. But, uh, it's also interesting that she... She's playing an older character, as I think she tends to do more and more mm-hmm. as as she enters the advanced age of her 30s. Right, <laughs> right. That was one of the gifts to her career of being able to do character roles of various ages when she was really young. And then as she grows into later, into the 40s and 50s, then she's doing a lot of really interesting things, both on, <clears throat> on film and on stage where she started doing a lot of Shakespeare um, in her later years. She was also doing regional things. She would go back to Broadway and maybe have, you know, a long run in something, but then she'd be in, you know, whatever, South Carolina or, you know, 
somewhere in Louisiana doing a play there. And uh, she kept busy for those years, but by the time you get to the late 40s, that's when the Red Scare is coming in. And as you get into the early 50s, you know, her career is diminishing because she winds up being named in uh, uh, as a communist sympathizer in Red Channels. She's on the blacklist. And it gets harder and harder for her to, to get work. She's just, um, you know, a, sort of a victim like a lot of other people, whether it was in the entertainment industry or politics, of that era of, you know, communist fear. So. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. She was... I mean, she was definitely a progressive leftist leaning. Her husband having, you know, building these sort of utopian communities, you know, definitely was of that same uh, orientation. But amusingly, she failed to ever join the Communist Party just because she was probably out of town at the right moment. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, that's kind of what she said. Like, you know every time that she was ready to kind of like take that next step and be a party member she was going back to New York to be with her husband um, and put it off the table until later and then thank God for her that she never joined the party because she probably would have been up in front of uh, House on American Activities Committee. Right. But she did have trouble getting work. I mean, she gets a job in The Flame and the Arrow with Burt Lancaster and then can't get another one after that. She's just like, I was just in a movie. What's your problem? And right, exactly. She, she at that time, you know, she really didn't have any idea that it, this was, you know, this communist scare was winding its way through the entertainment industry. It was just in its earliest stages. And she's mad at her agents. She's like, what the hell, guys? Like, you know, where's my next job? So, you know, I think she didn't realize and, you know, maybe her agents didn't realize what was going on there until maybe a few months later. I think it was about a year before Red Channels came out, which had, you know, 160-some names of supposed communists, and she was in there. And that, I think that's when everybody realized what was going on and how serious it was. Yeah. So, yeah, so she's... I mean, she did a little TV in that time, but not as much as many people, because, again, because she couldn't get hired for it. Right. Did a little theater, but it, it could also be a problem there, too. Yeah, which is why I think in that period, more and more of it was regional theater, where you were away from the big power centers, and there were probably people in those places who had less to risk if they, if they had an idea of her affiliations they might hire her anyway, or they were just out of the loop, you know. If you're a Broadway producer, if you're a Hollywood executive, you probably have red channels on your uh, on your desk and you look up and see who you can and can't hire. But I think somebody who's putting on a play in South Carolina may not either care or have the, you know, have their finger on what's happening at the moment. Yeah. No, it's like, it seems unlikely that Aline McMahon will overthrow the state of South Carolina while she's in town for this place. So. Yeah, ma making faces on the stage, she's going to corrupt everybody. Yeah. Know? All right, so she, I mean, her film and television career ends somewhere in the 60s, early 70s. Right. Uh, you said she was, she was offered a part on All in the Family. Which I think, you know, she could have been Maud, right. you know? <laughs> right, exactly. 
And yeah, yeah I, I, I haven't been able to find out exactly what they wanted her to, to do, um, but it but was it a recurring role. it seems kind of in the type, you know, Maude, of course, is based on Norman Lear's ex-wife. Yeah. So, I mean, another kind of strong, bossy woman of that sort. Right. It doesn't surprise me. Right. And, and it probably would have been good for her because it would have been a chance for her to go back to her, her comedy roots, and she probably would have been really good at that. She was almost 70 then. And I think she was just she was just slowing down. Um, her husband was sick at that time. He died in 1975, and he had been kind of losing his mental faculties for a number of years before that. So I think she was just kind of dialing it down and really putting more emphasis on helping to take care of him, working where she could. Um, and I think, you know, probably being on the West Coast periodically, which she continued to do sometimes, but being out there you know to do these regular guest appearances may have just she may have just decided it was too much for her and yeah and then her mom was still alive i mean that's kind of amazing you know she lived to 106 yeah yeah and and apparently maintained her mental faculties and you know of course slowed down like anybody would yeah <laughs> getting to that age but uh yeah lived to be 106 and um there's a little quote in the book after she had gone out to visit her mother on her 106th birthday she said something to the effect of she wrote to a friend she said my mother is her mind is clear she eats well she sleeps through the night and then there's like a pause and it says but don't ever be 106 <laughs> yeah so she yeah, i think she was uh she was happy to have her mother with her, but I, I think she had decided she didn't ever want to be 106. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there's the life of Aline McMahon. If people have no idea who we're talking about, uh, what <laughs> what would you recommend? What are, what are your picks for, like, where to see who Aline McMahon was? All right. I, I would say if I was going to pick probably three movies... I would, I would have to say Gold Diggers of 1933. It's a very satisfying movie, even as irrespective of Aline McMahon. It's a lot of fun. It also has Warren William in it. And, and she's Guy got Kibbe. And, and, yeah, it's got everybody. It's got yeah. Joe Blondell. It's got, you know, right. it, it, it's got, like, the Warner's cast of the era. Um, and then what well, we talked about before, Heat Lightning, which sure. is one of her best starring roles. And then if you can find it, it doesn't turn up on Turner very often. There is a print on YouTube. It's a little grainy, but Once in a Lifetime, which is uh, the movie based on the play, which is about Hollywood's transition to sound films. And it's written by Moss Hart and um, George Kaufman, one of the great all-time writing teams. Uh, and she's got a terrific little role in that. It's got a lot of fun people, Zazu Pitts, and like all sorts of other great comedians, Jack O'Kee. Uh, so if you can find that, that, that would be another one that I would suggest. John Stanglin's Aline McMahon, Hollywood, The Blacklist, and The Birth of Method Acting is out now from University Press of Kentucky. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. 
thanks to my guests, Chris Daniels, Snorri Smari Matisson, and John Stanglin, and to Ben Omar at Bear Manor and Meredith Doherty at University Press of Kentucky. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, and if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help other people discover us too. Thanks! What is all this insolence? You will find yourself in gladiator school very quickly! <laughs>